afternoon, depending where you are. Uh, and welcome to the Mary Trump Show live stream of what is likely to be the final January 6th committee hearing uh, in which we're told we are going to be uh, hearing about potential criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. Uh, hi, Dahlia. How are you? Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm tired. I'm in uh, L.A. I know. I've been enjoying your uh, hobby nobby uh, highfalutinness. Yeah. Listen, what can I say? <laughs> what can I say? Nothing. We are not a word. very highfalutin over here. There you go. Um, <laughs> but actually, for those who don't know, we're out. Uh, Jen and Waj and I are out here for the very first live onstage version of the Mary Trump Show. Uh, Nerd Avengers edition, uh, and that's tonight, so we're excited. But I think what's happening this morning is important enough for us to tear ourselves away from show prep um, because Dahlia won. As I said, this was is likely the last hearing of the January 6th committee, not because they've run out of material, but because, sadly, the Republicans now have the majority in the House and they are going to turn their attention as of January 3rd to much more important uh, um, investigations like Benghazi, um, who stole Christmas, I think it was a Grinch, um, and, uh, you know, what happened to Al Capone's vault. Uh, so this is this is going to be left in the dust. Um, but can you maybe frame for us why this hearing uh, is important, uh, if indeed it is? Will it and will it make a difference? One thing I was thinking, Mary, tell me if I'm wrong, is that the elections, the midterms taught us that actually all of those hearings that we were covering frantically, thinking nobody cared, People actually care, right? The hearings were, as they went on all summer, unbelievably widely watched and absorbed. And the midterms, I think, proved that they were top of mind for a lot of voters who understood that the point of the hearings was to kind of create a historical record, to create accountability. Um, and in the midterms, people voted as though that mattered to them. And, you know, huge, huge uh, numbers of uh, voters polled said that democracy and, you know, feeling that democracy was on the precipice animated their votes in the midterms. And I think it's not a trivial thing that we are now watching a hearing, the last hearing, as you said, in which we now know that it mattered. We spent a lot of time this summer hoping it would matter. It matters now. And as you said, the paradox is we're going to have these criminal referrals. I think um, Jeff Clark is on the hook and John Eastman is on the hook. The president is on the hook. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting paradox that having now established that Americans actually really cared about January 6th, they really cared about an attempted coup and threats to democracy. We're now winding it up with this final hearing, with these criminal referrals that are not indictments, right? It's just a referral. And with this very, very symbolic swan song at exactly the moment that the American electorate has said that all the stuff we spent the last year talking about, that this matters, that it really does. I think that's fascinating. 
It, it's fascinating and um, hopefully not um, self-defeating. Or superfluous. <laughs> but Well, I don't think it's superfluous. I hope not. I, I think it matters. Well, I, I think whether or not there's follow through, Jen, it matters to have it spelled out for us. It matters to see it in black and white. Um, and honestly, I think whatever the Republican response is will just bolster the committee's findings uh, because they just they're not serious people. Um, and I what I want to clarify for people is uh, for our viewers is what is the point of a criminal referral? from Congress to the DOJ and, or I guess a con congressional committee to the DOJ, and who is the, who at the DOJ is the person paying attention? Is this going to be Merrick Garland, uh, you know, ignoring more, <laughs> more fact-finding from Congress? Um, or is this, is, is this in uh, Jack, Jack Smith's purview? It's Jack yeah. Um, I was asking, go, so go ahead. Yeah, so I, I always like to give some things historical context um, in Please terms do. of, well, you know, this is a uh, this is a special committee of the House, but there have been other instances. The Senate Permit Subcommittee, PSI, that was run so well by um, Senator Levin and others, held many of these investigative um, kind of processes and produced reports, and they made criminal referrals. It's pretty common. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that our news media is like, well, you know, what's the point of this? And even some prosecutors, see a lot of the federal prosecutors who will say, well, leave the prosecutors alone. They don't need a referral. Aren't they're thinking from their own frame of reference. I'm thinking from my frame of reference as someone who just enjoys, you know, learning and reading about scandals and illegality. And so having read all these, I think it's the norm. Hi, Norm. I think it's the norm to actually at the end of one of these things, make a criminal referral. You know, if you see something, say something. And so I also agree with you, Mary, and uh, about this part about just tying, you know, tying it up in a bow. So we're about to, you know, two weeks, there's gonna be a new, you know, Michigan Congress, and they're gonna do all kinds of nutty things if they can actually find a, a, a leader and kind of get votes on it. And now this is like, thank you very much. It's handed off to Jack Smith. And Jack Smith, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm giving him two months. If he doesn't indict within two months, he can go fuck himself. Sorry, right. shit, I'm not supposed to be swearing. People Why? like Martin, you know, don't, Martin James oh, like okay. swearing. Name dropping. Okay. I, I'm so full of names to drop, Mary. I'm uh, in Los Pre Angeles. President Bartlett is not here. You can swear. I'm glad that it's Waj, not the shadow. I was a little worried who is who is trying to. Uh, Both in the same place. It's, it looks here. But, it's, uh, the, it's the shadow of Waj. We're all in the same LA hotel, and apparently they gave me the one with the worst lighting to make Jen and Mary look better for today. No, there, it's all. <laughs> this, I love this hotel, but it does have a bit of a serial killer vibe, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, but Norm, first of all, it's so good to see you. It's been far too long. Yes. I'm really happy you could be here today, and I, I want to ask you about um, the the kind of skepticism with which we should be going into this. Here, well, not into the hearing, but with which we should be looking at what happens next, because as we've discussed before, Merrick Garland had 
a roadmap handed to him uh, by Robert Mueller, which included um, serious potential charges against Donald Trump. And as far as I know right now, uh, more than half of those potential charges uh, have passed their statutes of limitations. So if indeed this committee comes up with uh, real substantive charges, what what's the hope? Or what, sorry, what's the, we know what the hope is. What, what do you think we can reasonably expect from this DOJ? I will be shocked at this point if we don't get indictments of Trump. Um, the question to me is how many? I think we are likely to see, um, uh, we're far more likely to see them uh, over the uh, stolen documents than we are over the insurrection. But I think we may find some over the insurrection I also think that the manipulation of phony electors um, may bring him into uh, the web as well. I can imagine multiple indictments. I don't know Jack Smith, but I know a lot of people who know him well. And he is a straightforward, hard-charging, take-no-prisoners kind of guy. I don't think he got into this to whitewash anything. And... You know, if I had my druthers, Mary, going way back, I would have preferred that Garland, at, right at the beginning, pick a special counsel um, who could have moved forward on some of these other charges. But at another level, I can understand that stepping right into the White House right after Trump and indicting him on charges had an explosive element to it. And it would could easily have been taken by too many people and not just the ardent Trumpists as this is the way they do things in a banana republic. Um, you know, you uh, punish your enemies taking over. So a methodical approach is okay. It still should have gone faster than it has, but I will now be surprised if there aren't many indictments. And what I'm hoping as well is that they will not just include Trump, but also the odious Mark Meadows and the equally odious Rudy Giuliani and a whole host of others right around Trump. Uh, of course, Eastman um, should be among them. Powell. But also the big question, now that we've seen these Meadows texts, is which members of Congress, including Ted Cruz, who were intimately engaged in trying to overturn the results of an election will also be brought to the bar of justice. And there I'm less confident. Yeah, uh, Brian, Norm makes such an important point, uh, two important points, well, many, an infinite number of important points because it's Norm. But I wanna <laughs> focus on, on a couple of them. Um, one, this is not just about Donald, and we see this with the uh, latest grift, the trading cards that actually don't exist in three-dimensional space. Um, you know, that, that they're going to use any opportunity, the Republican Party that is, to pretend that the, the, Donald's the problem, and once we get rid of him, the Republican Party is, is pure again, and that is as far from the truth as it can be. He could not have done what he's done without an enormous uh, 
support network network that is equally and in some cases perhaps more complicit than he is and that is people in the executive branch for sure but what we forget because they're still sitting members of congress we have at least 34 people in the house and in the senate who were to one degree or another involved in an insurrection against our government and i sometimes feel brian that if we can't figure out a way for the system to police itself, we're in a lot of trouble. So if their names aren't even mentioned, what do we do with that? <laughs> well, their names are. Let me, let me take one thing that you said. I want to clear up first. Go back to those NFTs, those wonderful NFTs. <laughs> Donald will probably come out with his own cryptocurrency next. But uh, the, but those NFTs, I talked to a tax attorney today because I was a little suspicious of them. That, that's a money, money laundering get, grift. It what is. And Brian, it was, hang on one second, because we've like two minutes before okay. this starts. So can we focus? Hey, Kathy. Yeah, all right. So, all right. To, just to focus, what can we do? First of all, I'm predicting January 6th for the first round of indictments. I think it'll go uh, it'll go on Mar-a-Lago first. Then it's going to go to Georgia. Then it's going to come back to the January 6th committee. And there's going to be multiple indictments. Rudy Giuliani, Clark, Eastman. Uh, Meadows, all of them are under the scrutiny of the DOJ. My sources at the DOJ said, just hang on, it's coming. I, I think January 6th is ominous because it falls on a Friday. The DOJ loves to issue uh, their indictments on a Friday, so yeah. that would fit. But if it isn't on January 6th, I still think it's going to be coming sooner rather than later. I'm patient, like Norm said. It, he is a meticulous man, but Jack Smith, who I have interviewed and Jack Smith, who has, has has a great reputation in the DOJ, is a guy that you don't want to mess with. He's the guy that will take a case, even if it isn't a slam dunk. And there are p plenty of people who have criticized him for some of his, his previous prosecutions. But this is the last guy that Donald Trump or any of his minions want to see staring at them at the end of a tunnel, because this guy knows no fear, doesn't care, and will go after you. So I think Donald Trump is on his, I've said that before, I think he's on his last legs besides just the actuary table coming after him. I think there's no doubt that the DOJ is coming and is going to lay him low. Yeah, and Brian, I just, sorry to re redirect, but I want to stay focused on this. The NFT thing is something we absolutely need to talk about in the in the future. And in, in some ways, I do think it's all related, but- It is, it's a money laundering scheme to get the money that, that yeah. he wants for- But the they're not going to be talking about it today. So let's let's- stay focused on the hearings and I don't, we should be starting soon. So watch, I want to get your quick take on what we're, uh, what we have to look forward to. And then when we take a break, Kathy, I'll go right to you. If we don't have time now, uh, watch. Go ahead. Uh, just want to say I'm representing all nerds, uh, around the world without abs in LA right now, where I might be the most hideous person in this hotel, but I'm trying my best, uh, to look somewhat decent. Uh, and I was not one of the cool kids invited to Kathy's house. I just want to say, so it's just like school all over again in LA. You're the fattest person You're the fattest person I agree. No, <laughs> uh, I, I just want to say that I will be the cynic of the room and say that I do not think that even if Donald Trump gets indicted for the numerous crimes that have been mentioned, Georgia, uh, stealing classified documents, uh, tax, um, uh, financial crimes, and also, um, I missed one, January 6th. He's a Republican president, and presidents in this country, especially Republican presidents, nothing happens to them. Uh, look at Richard Nixon. Look at Ronald Reagan. Um, and so, yes, he'll get indicted. And I do think that the knives are out for him for the Republican Party because they want to move to DeSantis, and that might help this time around. But I, the same con the same things that I've heard about Jack Smith, I heard about Robert Mueller, and he gave uh, 
you know, this laundry list of crimes that Donald Trump committed and nothing happened. So I do think he will get indicted. I agree with Norm and Brian and Jen. Uh, will uh, they put him in jail because he is a flight risk? No. Will he spend a day of his life in jail? No. But the indictment and the narrative case that Donald Trump, and especially those around him, and I want to do mention this, I know we're running out of time, is Talking Points Memo a couple of days ago, came out with this blockbuster report, just came out with it again last night, where they have access to Mark Meadows' thousands of texts that he sent to the January 6th committee. The first uh, article that they wrote revealed that 34 sitting Republican congressmen messaged Mark Meadows in support of the insurrection, right? The one that came out yesterday showed that it wasn't just Republican congressmen, but the entire conservative ecosystem, which is involved, which includes folks, I always, I always want to remind you, Ginny Thomas, who just as of last month said, I believe in the big lie. Uh, she is the wife of Supreme Court Clarence uh, Thomas, right? Justice Clarence Thomas. So the infrastructure is so deep that if you just go after Trump, I think you're missing the point because this coup is ongoing. Right. To me, the success will be if they go after Giuliani, Eastman, this guy who's openly still promoting the big lie, this fraud of an attorney, uh, Clark. Uh, I want investigation into Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas. I want Democrats to really use whatever vestige of power they have left to make the narrative case leading up to 2024 to indict the entire Republican Party, which is number one, accountability, so that this doesn't happen again. And number two, it will help them, and pardon me for thinking strategically, it will help them in the 2024 elections. And it's a redo of what Republicans did to Clinton in 2015. And Mark Meadows openly said that we only did the investigations to hurt her leading up to the uh, to 2016 election. So it's yeah. good politics, but it's also real accountability. And unless I see that, I'm still seeing a criminal Republican uh, party and a conservative movement that will get away scot-free if these investigations aren't carried out and include the rest of the minions who are involved in the ongoing coup. That's, that's my take. Yeah, and listen, we need to, we have to hope that the American electorate is going to start waking up to what the Republican Party is all about. You know, these bullshit investigations, um, you know, uh, holding the government hostage with the debt ceiling unless they get there. You know, they are not out for the American people. Uh, they're willing to tank, risk tanking the world economy to get their way, which is basically tax cuts for rich people and a lot of racism. So, Kathy, though, I want to focus in on something uh, that that Dahlia wrote in the private chat, which is, you know, in the case of holding Republicans or the Republican Party in general accountable, at least I, hopefully I'm not misstating that. Um, what's her name? Liz Cheney is not our friend. Yes, she drew she drew the line at an insurrection. But before that, she voted for Donald Trump twice. She voted with him 93% of the time. So Kathy, I think a, a, one of the one of the um, potential letdowns we'll see this afternoon is the fact that Liz Cheney got way too much say in who was brought in front of uh, this committee to testify uh, under oath and on video. Yeah, and possibly Kinsinger, we don't know. But I, I agree because our team was so excited to have the bipartisan, you know, label we could add. And so, you know, we look, we are living on crumbs. We, we Debs. And we're so excited to see Liz Cheney. But if I hear one more, because you know I like to throw my LA friends under the bus. If I hear one more of my LA lady friends like... 
I don't know, Liz Cheney, it's time for a female president. I'm like, no, that, <laughs> and so, but you know, like they, like that person never would have voted for Sarah Palin or even maybe Elizabeth Dole. And so there's still like that confusion going on, which they're so masterful at. But um, I'm also curious, now do you guys know if the Meadows text that Talking Points got, I almost said turning point. Um, did the committee see those for sure? Yes. So they've had them more than a couple of days, though? Yes. So I'm really, I mean, I have been waiting for those Meadows texts since we heard, because once again, we're living on crumbs. We don't have the Secret Service texts, at least publicly that we know the of. The DOJ has them too, Kathy. Okay, good. Yeah. Once again, it's like you would think they already would have indicted Mark Meadows based on that or how long they've had it. But I would think that's as close to a gold mine that we sort of even know about. Remember, Trump was putting stuff in the toilet and people testified he was eating paper. So you can't just assume that, you know, it's low carb. I mean, he's fiber. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fiber. Yeah. It's fiber low carb. Yeah, and so so once again, yeah, that's uh, that's tough. When I want to think Liz Cheney is sort of honorable in a way, but you can't reconcile that with what looks like her protecting, in particular, Jenny Thomas, and also keeping Jenny Thomas kind of out of the news. Like like I said, a lot of my LA friends they like kind of have a concept of who she is, but they you don't mean our LA friends. Yes, now that you're a shallow Los Angelino like myself with your Hollywood. It took two days. Lib Target. Commie. Um, yeah, now the world commies together. You know, so it's, once again, it's going to be just, I'm just telling you, reminding the American voter of the simple stuff, which right. is what we do so effectively. Oh, we're going to start again. Dun, dun, dun. We need Kathy. Great timing. And that's why Kathy's a professional. She knows right when to close it. <laughs> Go to the clip. A quorum being present, the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare the committee in recess at any point. Pursuant to House Deposition Authority Regulation 10, the chair announces the committee's approval to release the deposition material presented during today's meeting and further its approval to release deposition material that accompanies release of the select committee's final report. Good afternoon, and may God bless the United States of America. To cast a vote in the United States is an act of faith and hope. When we drop that ballot in the ballot box, we expect the people named on the ballot are going to uphold their end of the deal. The winner swears an oath and upholds it. Those who come up short ultimately accept the results and abide by the rule of law. That faith in our system is the foundation of American democracy. If the faith is broken, so is our democracy. Donald Trump broke that faith he lost the 2020 election and knew it, but he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme 
to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. There's no doubt about this. This afternoon, my colleagues will present our key findings, reminding you of some of the information we presented in earlier hearings and telling you how it fits in our broader conclusions. Those conclusions have helped shape the committee's final report, which we'll adopt today pursuant to House Resolution 503, which establishes the select committee nearly a year and a half ago. I expect our final work will be filed with the clerk of the House and made public later this week. Beyond that release, the select committee intends to make public the bulk of its non-sensitive records before the end of the year. These transcripts and documents will allow the American people to see for themselves the body of evidence we've gathered and continue to explore the information that has led us to our conclusions. This committee is nearing the end of its work. But as the country, we remain in strange and uncharted waters. We've never had a president of the United States stir up a violent attempt to block the transfer of power. I believe nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. How do we stop it? This committee will lay out a number of recommendations in this final report, but beyond any specific details and recommendations we present, there's one factor I believe is most important in preventing another January 6th, accountability. So today, beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Jeez. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. We have every confidence that the work of this committee will help provide a roadmap to justice and that the agencies and institutions responsible for ensuring justice under the law will use the information we've provided to aid in their work. And for those of you who have followed this committee's work, I hope we've helped make clear that there's a broader kind of accountability. Accountability to all of you, the American people. The future of our democracy rests in your hands. It's up to the people of this country to decide who deserves the public trust who will put fidelity to the Constitution and democracy above all else? Who will abide by the rule of law, no matter the outcome? I'm grateful to the millions of you who followed this committee's work. I hope we lived up to our commitment to present the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. Let me say in closing, the women and men seated around me on this dais of public servants in the most genuine sense. They put aside politics and partisanship to ensure the success of this committee in providing answers to the American people. I especially want to thank and acknowledge our vice chair, 
who has become a true partner in this bipartisan effort, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming. And I also recognize her for any opening statement that she care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your, your tremendous leadership of this committee. I know we all have benefited uh, greatly from, from your wisdom and your wise counsel, so thank you very much. In April of 1861, when Abraham Lincoln issued the first call for volunteers for the Union Army, my great-great-grandfather, Samuel Fletcher Cheney, joined the 21st Ohio Volunteer Infantry. He fought through all four years of the Civil War, from Chickamauga to Stones River to Atlanta. He marched with his unit in the Grand Review of Troops up Pennsylvania Avenue in May of 1865, past a reviewing stand where President Johnson and General Grant were seated. Silas Canfield, the regimental historian of the 21st Ohio Volunteer Infantry, described the men in the unit this way. He said they had a just appreciation of the value and advantage of free government and the necessity of defending and maintaining it. And they enlisted, prepared to accept all the necessary labors, fatigues, exposures, dangers, and even death for the unity of our nation and the perpetuity of our institutions. I have found myself thinking often, especially since January 6th, of my great-great-grandfather and all those in every generation who have sacrificed so much for the unity of our nation and the perpetuity of our institutions. At the heart of our republic is the guarantee of the peaceful transfer of power. Members of Congress are reminded of this every day as we pass through the Capitol Rotunda. There, eight magnificent paintings detail the earliest days of our republic. One, painted by John Trumbull, depicts the moment in 1793 when George Washington resigned his commission, handing control of the Continental Army back to Congress. Trumbull called this, quote, one of the highest moral lessons ever given the world. With this noble act, George Washington established the indispensable example of the peaceful transfer of power in our nation. Standing on the west front of the Capitol in 1981, President Ronald Reagan described it this way. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place, as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony that we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Every president in our history has defended this orderly transfer of authority, except one. January 6, 2021 was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. In our work over the last 18 months, the Select Committee has recognized our obligation to do everything we can to ensure this never happens again. At the beginning of our investigation, we understood that tens of millions of Americans had been persuaded by President Trump that the 2020 election was stolen by overwhelming fraud. And we also knew this was flatly false. We knew that dozens of state and federal judges had addressed and resolved 
all manner of allegations about the election. Our legal system functioned as it should, but our president would not accept the outcome. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. Members of his family, his White House lawyers, virtually all those around him knew that this simple act was critical. For hours, he would not do it. During this time, law enforcement agents were attacked and seriously injured. The Capitol was invaded, the electoral count was halted, and the lives of those in the Capitol were put at risk. In addition to being unlawful as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Evidence of this can be seen in the testimony of President Trump's own White House counsel and several other White House witnesses. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The committee recognizes that our work has only begun. It's only the initial step in addressing President Trump's effort to remain in office illegally. Prosecutors are considering the implications of the conduct that we describe in our report, as are citizens all across our nation. In 1761, John Adams wrote, the very ground of our liberties is the freedom of elections. Faith in our elections and the rule of law is paramount to our republic. Election deniers, those who refuse to accept lawful election results, purposely attack the rule of law and the foundation of our country. The history of our time will show that the bravery of a handful of Americans doing their duty saved us from an even more grave constitutional crisis. Elected officials, election workers, and public servants stood against Donald Trump's corrupt pressure. Many of our committee's witnesses showed selfless patriotism, and their words and courage will be remembered. The brave men and women of the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and all the other law enforcement officers who fought to defend us that day saved lives and our democracy. Finally, I wish to thank my colleagues on this committee. It has been a tremendous honor to serve with all of you. We have accomplished great and important things together, and I hope we have set an example. And I also want to thank all of those who have honorably contributed to the work of our committee and to our report. We have accomplished much over a short period of time. Many of you sacrificed for the good of our nation. You have helped make history, and I hope helped to right the ship. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Gentlelady yields back. As you know, this is our final meeting of our committee. Over the course of the last year and a half, we presented evidence in 10 public hearings, testimony from our brave law enforcement officers, senior White House, and campaign officials, and many others. Today, we are prepared to share our final findings with you. 
Here we go. But before we do so, it's important to remember what we've learned and critically exactly what happened at the United States Capitol on January 6th. Without objection, I include in the record a video presentation of some of the key evidence our investigation has uncovered. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge. They grabbed and stripped me of my radio. They seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects. The key thing to do is to claim victory. No, we won. Fuck you. Sorry. Over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. Fuck you. Right out of the box on election night, the president uh, claimed that there was major fraud underway. I mean, this happened, as far as I could tell, before there was actually any potential of looking at evidence. I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional at that point in time. So yeah, that led to me stepping away. Generally discussed on that topic was whether the fraud, maladministration, abuse, or irregularities, uh, if aggregated and read most favorably to the campaign, would that be outcome determinative? And um, I think everyone's assessment in the room, at least amongst the staff, Mark Short, myself, and Greg Jacob, was that it was not sufficient to be outcome determinative. I told him that I did believe, yes, that once the, those legal processes were run, uh, if fraud had not been established, that had affected the outcome of the election, then unfortunately, I believed that what had to be done was concede the outcome. What were the chances of President Trump winning the election? After that point? Yes. None. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes, fellas. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. The numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. We had many allegations, and we investigated every single one of them. Did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that uh, they didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories? That was Mr. Giuliani. And, and what exactly did he say and how that come up? My recollection, he said, we've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. You're asking me to do something that's never been done in history the history of the United States. And I'm going to put my state through that without sufficient proof. It's a tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. Lie. In one of the videos we just watched, Mr. Giuliani accused you and your mother of passing some sort of USB drive to each other. Uh, what was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? Yes, The I president do. of the United States is supposed to represent every American. 
not the target one. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. He wanted to talk about that he thought the uh, the election had been uh, stolen or, or was corrupt and that there was widespread fraud. And I had told him that uh, our reviews had not shown that to be the case. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. Well, my first thought was, worse, this is a, a terrible idea. Jeff Clark cannot be installed as acting attorney general of the United States. You ultimately told us that you described uh, this meeting as a, or the, not this meeting, the Georgia letter that was proposed as a, an effing murder-suicide pact. Do you remember using the term murder-suicide pact? Yes. Was it your impression that the vice president had directly conveyed his position on these issues to the president, not just to the world through a dear colleague letter, but directly to President Trump? Many times. My view was that the vice president had, didn't have the legal authority to do anything except what he did. And I said, hold on a second, I want to understand what you're saying. You're saying that you believe the vice president acting as president of the Senate can be the sole decision maker as to, under your theory, who becomes the next president of the United States. And you said, yes. And I said, are you out of your effing mind? The president was, you know, all the attention was on uh, what Mike would do or what Mike wouldn't do. There's a telephone conversation between the president and the vice president. Is that correct? Yes. The conversation was, was pretty heated. Apologize for being impolite, but do you remember what she said? Her father called him. The P word. Bring up it. Bring it up. It was clear that it was escalating and escalating quickly. So then when that tweet, the Mike Pence tweet um, was sent out, um, I remember us saying that that was the last thing that needed to be tweeted at that moment. It felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. I gained access to the second floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below. They are on the second floor, moving in now. We may want to consider getting out and leaving now. Copy. Members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. There were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. Approximately 40 feet. That's all there was. 40 feet between the vice president and the mob. Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. We got derogatory information from OSINT suggesting that uh, some very, very violent individuals uh, were organizing uh, to come to D.C. As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought, for everything he's done for us, if this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it. Um, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. This is hard to take. Within 15 minutes of leaving the stage, President Trump knew that the Capitol was besieged and under attack. So are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Defense that day? Not that I'm aware of, no. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Attorney General of the United States that day? No. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Homeland Security that day? I, I'm not aware of that, no. Did you ever hear the Vice President, or excuse me, the President no. ask for the National no. Guard? Did you ever hear the President ask for law enforcement response? No. You got an assault going on on the capital of the United States of America. Nothing. No call. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. You on the staff did not want people to leave the Capitol. On the staff? I, 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 I can't think of anybody, you know, on that day who didn't want people to get out of the the Capitol once the, you know, particularly once the violence started. No. I mean, it, what about the president? Yeah. Well, she said the staff. So I answered. No, I said in the White House. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I thought you said who, who else on the staff? Um, yeah, I, I, I can't reveal communications, but obviously, I think you know. <laughs> said, good John now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life get a great effing criminal defense lawyer you're going to need it General Flynn do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America let's go I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Fanon still can't get a job. The chair now recognizes the gentlewoman from California. Ms. Lofgren, for an opening statement. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Over the last 18 months, the Select Committee has conducted a congressional investigation of enormous scale, seeking to uncover the depth and breadth of ex-President Trump's multi-part plan to reverse the lawful outcome of the 2020 presidential election. We've compiled an immense volume of documents collected from countless individuals, law enforcement agencies, and federal and state authorities. Many of our efforts to get the evidence required litigation in federal court, including the U.S. Supreme Court. We've taken the testimony of hundreds of witnesses. And while we couldn't show them all during the hearings, we focused on those who were most, most central, including our ex-president's White House aides, his senior Department of Justice officials, and senior members of his campaign. Based on this assembled evidence, the Select Committee has reached a series of specific findings. Now, many of these findings pertain to what has been called the big lie, the enormous effort led by ex-President Trump to spread baseless accusations and misinformation in an attempt to falsely convince tens of millions of Americans that the election had been stolen from him. Beginning even before the election, and continuing through January 6th and thereafter, Donald Trump purposely disseminated false allegations of fraud in order to aid his effort to overturn the 2020 election. Ex-President Trump's decision to declare victory falsely on election night wasn't a spontaneous decision. It was premeditated. The committee has evidence that ex-President Trump planned to declare victory and unlawfully to call for the vote counting to stop, and that he told numerous allies about his intent in the weeks before the election. He did it in the news. The committee found that Mr. Sure. Trump raised hundreds of millions of dollars with false representations made to his online donors. The proceeds from his fundraising, we have learned, have been used in ways that we believe are concerning. In particular, the committee has learned that some of those funds were used to hire lawyers. We've also obtained evidence of efforts to provide or offer employment to witnesses. For example, one lawyer told a witness, the witness could, in certain circumstances, tell the committee that she didn't recall facts when she actually did recall them. That lawyer also did not disclose who was paying for the lawyer's representation despite questions from the clients seeking that information. He told her, quote, we're not telling people where funding is coming from right now. We've learned that a client was offered potential employment that would make her, quote, financially very comfortable as the date of her testimony approached by uh, entities that were apparently linked to Donald yeah. Trump and his associates. These offers were withdrawn or didn't materialize as reports of the content of her testimony circulated. The witness believed this was an effort to affect her testimony, and we are concerned that these efforts may have been a strategy to prevent the committee from finding the truth. Throughout the post-election period, ex-President Trump was told repeatedly by his campaign advisors, government officials, and others, there was no evidence to support his claims of election fraud. Even since our last hearing, the Select Committee has obtained testimony from new witnesses who've come forward to tell us about their conversations 
with ex-President Trump on this topic, here is one of his senior advisors, Hope Hicks. Being evidence of fraud on a scale that would have impacted the outcome of the election. And I was becoming increasingly concerned that we were damaging um, we were damaging his legacy. Uh, what did the president say in response to what you just described? He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is, is winning. Despite all that, he continued to purposely and maliciously make false claims, sometimes within a day of being told that a particular claim was false and unsupported by the evidence. By the time the Electoral College met to cast its votes on December 14, 2020, a number of President Trump's senior staff, cabinet officials, and members of his family were urging him to facilitate a peaceful transition to the incoming administration. He disregarded their advice, and he continued to claim publicly that the election had been stolen from him. Numerous state and federal courts evaluated and rejected the Trump campaign's claims of voter fraud, including 11 judges appointed by ex-President Trump himself. Many of these courts issued scathing opinions, criticizing the lack of evidence that ex-President Trump and his allies had advanced to support their claims. Numerous individuals associated with these efforts have since acknowledged that they were unable to find sufficient evidence of fraud to affect the election results, including in testimony to this select committee. Still, ex-President Trump repeated those false claims and tried to convince his supporters the election was stolen. This was an attempt to justify overturning the lawful election results. Donald Trump knowingly and corruptly repeated election fraud lies, which incited his supporters to violence on January 6th. He continues to repeat his meritless claim that the election was stolen even today and continues to erode our most cherished and shared belief in free and fair elections. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentlewoman yields back. Chair recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Schiff, for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Building on his constant repetition of the big lie, President Trump engaged in an unprecedented effort to obstruct the joint session on January 6th, a proceeding where his electoral loss would be certified by Congress. This effort began in part in the states, which hold, count, and ultimately determine the winners of presidential elections. Many state officials were targeted by President Trump and his campaign. The local election workers he accused baselessly of election fraud, the state officials he pressured to stop the count or to find votes that didn't exist, and the state legislative officials he urged to disregard the popular will of the voters and their oath of office in order to name him the winner instead. Here are the select committee findings about President Trump's state pressure campaign. President Trump and his enablers repeatedly pressured state officials to take action to overturn the results of the election. The most dramatic example of this campaign of coercion 
was the president's January 2nd, 2021 call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which the president urged the secretary to find 11,780 votes he needed to change the outcome in that state. During that call, President Trump again repeated conspiracy theories about the election that his own appointees at the Department of Justice had already debunked. Trump also made what Secretary Raffensperger apparently considered a threat, accurately considered a threat, suggesting that Raffensperger and his attorney, that they could be subject to criminal prosecution if they didn't follow through with his demands. Then, in repeated telephone calls and in-person meetings, Donald Trump pressured state elections officials and state legislators to alter official election results. But courageous public servants, including Republicans like Rusty Bowers, held firm and refused to put Donald Trump over their oath to the Constitution. When Donald Trump's pressure campaign did not achieve the results he wanted, he oversaw an effort to obtain and transmit false electoral college ballots to Congress and the National Archives. The false ballots were created by fake Republican electors on December 14th. At the same time, the actual certified electors in those states were meeting to cast their votes for President Biden. By that point in time, election-related litigation was over in all or nearly all of these states. And Trump campaign election lawyers realized that the fake slates were unjustifiable on any grounds and may be unlawful. In spite of these concerns and the concerns of individuals in the White House Counsel's office, President Trump and others proceeded with this plan. The select committee has developed evidence that these intentionally false documents were transmitted to multiple officers of the federal government and were intended to interfere with the proper conduct of the joint session, where the existence of so-called competing slates of electors would serve as a pretext for legitimate electoral votes to be rejected. President Trump repeatedly attacked state and local officials who refused to do his bidding, as well as local elections workers who he baselessly accused of fraud. As Ruby Freeman and the testimony of other elections officials so powerfully demonstrated, the people who drew President Trump's ire or were the subject of his lies faced real-world consequences, including public harassment and death threats. Some of these elections workers and officials have been forced to leave their homes. Others have been forced to leave the jobs they loved. Take a listen to Ms. Freeman's story. Now I won't even introduce myself by my name anymore. I get nervous when I bump into someone I know in the grocery store who says my name. I'm worried about who's listening. I get nervous when I have to give my name for food orders. I'm always concerned of who's around me. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. The treatment of Ms. Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss and so many others around the country was callous, inhuman, inexcusable, and dangerous. And those responsible should be held accountable. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Kingsinger, for an opening statement. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, certainly one of the many important components of our federal government is the Department of Justice. It's the body that it's responsible for enforcing our laws and investigating criminal wrongdoing. For this reason, it's of the utmost importance that our Department of Justice operates as a fair and neutral body that enforces our federal laws without fear or without favor. It is this critical function that President Trump sought to corrupt, as he sought to use the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute purported election fraud and to help him convince the public that the election was stolen. The Select Thank Committee you. has made the following findings with respect to the Department of Justice. In the weeks immediately following the 2020 election, Attorney General Bill Barr advised President Trump that the Department of Justice had not seen any evidence to support Trump's theory that the election was stolen by fraud. No evidence. Over the course of the three meetings in this post-election period, Attorney General Barr assured President Trump that the Justice Department was properly investigating claims of election fraud. He debunked numerous election fraud claims, many of which the president would then go on to repeat publicly. And he made clear that President Trump was doing, quote, a great, great disservice to the country by pursuing them. After Attorney General Barr's resignation, President Trump requested that the acting leadership of the department, Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. In other words, just tell a small lie to put the facade of legitimacy on this lie, and the Republican congressman and I can distort and destroy and create doubt all ourselves. Between December 23rd and January 3rd, President Trump called or met with them nearly every day and was told repeatedly the department investigation showed no factual support for Trump's fraud allegations. Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue told him that the fraud claims were simply untrue. As Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue continued to resist, President Trump then tried to install a loyalist named Jeffrey Clark to lead the department as acting attorney general. On several occasions, Clark met with the president, apparently along with Representative Scott Perry, without authorization, promising to take the actions that Barr, Rosen, and Donahue had refused to take. In particular, Mr. Clark intended to send a letter that he had drafted with the help of a political appointee that the White House installed at DOJ with just weeks left in the administration. Mr. Clark intended to send the letter to officials in numerous states, informing them falsely, of course, that the department had identified significant concerns about the election results in their state and encouraging their state legislatures to come into special session to consider appointing Trump rather than Biden electors. Here's acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue describing his reaction to Mr. Clark's proposed letter. Some drafting letters without the knowledge of what the department had actually done in terms of investigations, that he was being reckless. And I recall toward the end saying, what you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. Knowing that existing department leadership would not support his false election claims, President Trump 
offered Mr. Clark the job of acting attorney general. In a dramatic January 3rd meeting in the Oval Office, Rosen Donahue, White House counsel Pat Cipollone, and White House lawyer Eric Hirschman strongly objected to the appointment of Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Mr. Clark pleaded his case and offered to send the letter that he had drafted. The White House counsel called the Clark letter, quote, a murder-suicide pact. <coughs> Numerous White House and Department of Justice lawyers all threatened to resign if Mr. Clark was appointed. Donald Trump would be leading a graveyard. It was only after the threat of mass resignations that President Trump rescinded his offer to Mr. Clark. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. The chair recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Aguilar, for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Former President Trump's multi-part plan didn't stop with the states or with the Department of Justice. It touched nearly every component of our federal system, ranging from the courts to Congress to his own vice president, Mike Pence. In the weeks before January 6th, Mr. Trump turned to the man who had served him loyally for four years. He embraced an illegal scheme proposed by John Eastman and others who concocted an unfounded legal theory that the vice president could reject Joe Biden's electoral votes during the joint session. When Vice President Pence and many others, including Trump's own lawyer, John Eastman, told him correctly that former President Trump spearheaded an unprecedented campaign to coerce him to do it anyway, ultimately culminating in a dangerous threat to Mr. Pence's life on January 6th. These are the select committee's findings with respect to the pressure campaign against the vice president. John Eastman admitted in advance of the 2020 election that Mike Pence could not lawfully refuse to count official electoral votes, but he nevertheless devised a meritless proposal that deployed a combination of bogus election fraud claims and the fake electoral ballots to say that Mike Pence presiding over the joint session could reject legitimate electoral votes for president-elect Biden. But still, President Trump accepted and repeated Eastman's theory and used it to pressure the vice president to take unlawful action. In multiple heated conversations, President Trump directly pressured Vice President Pence to adopt the Eastman theory and either reject the electors or send them back to the state legislatures. The vice president consistently resisted and repeatedly told the president that he did not possess the authority to do what President Trump directed. This culminated in an angry phone call on the morning of January 6th between President Trump and Vice President Pence, during which the former president repeatedly berated Mr. Pence by cursing and leveling threats. White House staffer Nick Luna was one of the many witnesses who heard the call as it happened. Take a listen at Mr. Luna's testimony. Did you hear any part of the phone call, even if just this, the end that the president was speaking from? I did, yes. All right, and what'd you hear? So as I was dropping off the note, um, I, I, my memory, I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. Something to the effect, this is, the wording's wrong. I made the wrong decision four or five years ago. 
In the face of the vice president's resistance, the former president and others exerted both private and public pressure to change his mind. In his speech on the ellipse on the afternoon of January 6th, former President Trump told the crowd that Vice President Pence needed the courage to do what he has to do. Once the riot began, President Trump deliberately chose to issue a tweet attacking Mr. Pence, knowing that the crowd had already grown violent. Almost immediately thereafter, the crowd around the Capitol surged, and between 2.30 and 2.35 p.m., the Metropolitan Police line on the west front of the Capitol broke. This was the first time in MPD history that a line like this had broken. Rioters at the Capitol were heard chanting, hang Mike Pence, through the afternoon. As a result of this unrest, Vice President Pence was forced to flee to a secure location where he actively coordinated with law enforcement and other governmental officials to address the ongoing violence. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy, for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ultimately, President Trump did not succeed in bending state and federal officials to his will. At every turn, state officials, the Department of Justice, Mike Pence, and many others stood up for the rule of law and resisted the president's wishes. In that way, our American institutions held after the 2020 election. But that did not stop President Trump. Instead, he turned to his supporters, those who believed his lies about a stolen election. He summoned a crowd to the nation's capital on January 6, hoping that they would pressure Congress to do what he could not do on his own. The Select Committee has made the following findings on this issue. Two years ago today, in the early morning hours of December 19th, Donald Trump sent a tweet urging his supporters to travel to Washington for a protest on January 6th. Be there, we'll be wild, he tweeted. Between December 19th and January 6th, the president repeatedly encouraged his supporters to come to Washington. The president's December 19th tweet galvanized domestic violent extremists, including members of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and organized militia groups. These individuals began organizing to come to the Capitol in large numbers with the specific intent to use violence to disrupt the certification of the election during the joint session. Prior to January 6th, the FBI, Secret Service, U.S. Capitol Police, D.C. government and other law enforcement agencies gathered substantial evidence suggesting the risk of violence at the Capitol during the joint session. Prior to January, sorry, these included warnings like the following. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. President Trump supporters have proposed a movement to occupy Capitol Hill. Alert regarding the VP being a dead man walking if he doesn't do the right thing. I saw several other alerts saying they will storm the Capitol if he doesn't do the right thing. In the days leading up to January 6th, President Trump's advisors explicitly told him that he should encourage his supporters to be peaceful that day, but he refused. One witness, Hope Hicks, provided the committee with records of her text messages on January 6th. In one exchange with another staffer, he texted her, hey, I know you're seeing this, but he, referring to President Trump, really should tweet something about being nonviolent. 
I'm not there, Hicks replied. I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. When Ms. Hicks came in to provide testimony to the committee, we asked her about this exchange. Her explanation is that the he in this text wasn't the president, but rather it was Eric Hirschman. Take a listen to her testimony. When you wrote, I suggested it several times, and it presumably means that the president say something about being nonviolent. He wrote, I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Tell us what happened. Um, sure. I, I didn't speak to the president about this directly, but I communicated um, to people like Eric Hirschman um, that it was my view that it was important that the president put out some kind of message in advance of the event. And what was Mr. Hirschman's response? Um, Mr. Hirschman said that he had made the same, you know, recommendation um, directly to the president um, and that he had refused. Just so I understand, Mr. Hirschman said that he had already recommended to the president that the president convey a message that people should be peaceful on January 6th and the president had refused to do that? Yes. The public will be able to review this in the transcripts and see the perspective Eric Hirschman gave before we took Hope Hicks's testimony. Despite having knowledge of the threats of violence presented by the crowd gathered on January 6, President Trump gave an incendiary speech, declaring without basis that the election had been stolen and encouraging his supporters to fight like hell. And during the speech and immediately thereafter, President Trump stated his intention to travel to the Capitol with his supporters in an effort to influence the joint session. The select committee has developed evidence indicating that President Trump did, in fact, intend to go to the Capitol on the afternoon of January 6th, and that he repeatedly expressed that intention during the afternoon and in the days prior. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentlewoman yields back. Chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Virginia, Mrs. Luria, for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. All of President Trump's efforts came to a head on the afternoon of January 6th. Standing on the stage of the ellipse, President Trump told tens of thousands of angry supporters that the election was stolen, that they had the power to change that if they marched to the Capitol, and that they wouldn't have a country anymore if the presidency was taken away from him. He told them he would be there with them. And then as the crowd descended on the Capitol, President Trump watched it on television. Despite pleas from his senior advisors, from lawmakers on the Hill and from his own children, President Trump would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol. Mr. Trump's failures span the period from 1.10 p.m when his speech ended and he instructed his supporters to march to the Capitol to 4.17 p.m. when he finally begrudgingly told his supporters to go home. For 187 minutes, he actively disregarded his constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. As we've established through months of investigation, that is because the mob wanted what President Trump wanted, to impede the peaceful transition of power. These are the select committee's findings about President Trump's dereliction of duty. From the outset of the violence and for several hours that followed, people at the Capitol, people inside President Trump's administration, 
elected officials of both parties, members of President Trump's own family, and even Fox News commentators who were sympathetic to President Trump, all tried to contact the White House to urge him to do one singular thing, the one thing that all of these people immediately understood was required, instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. The president repeatedly refused pleas as he watched the violence at the Capitol on television. During the day, the president never spoke with National Guard, the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, or any law enforcement agency. At no point during the day or any other did he issue any order to deploy any law enforcement agency to assist. Multiple witnesses, including President Trump's White House counsel, testified to these facts. Your White House employees, who had been speaking directly with President Trump, state that he didn't want anything done. The president was making phone calls that afternoon, but they weren't law enforcement officials. Rather, President Trump continued to call his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Both President Trump and Mr. Giuliani spoke with congressional leaders, even after the, viol even after the violence had begun, to encourage them to continue delaying the session. Approximately three hours after being informed of the violence at the Capitol, hours during which, as our evidence has shown, Donald Trump sat in his dining room and watched the violence on television. The president released a video statement in which he again repeated that the election was stolen, told his supporters at the Capitol that he loved them and ultimately suggested that they disperse. The statement had an immediate impact on elements of the crowd, many of whom who have testified that it led them to depart the Capitol. At 6.01 p.m., President Trump in his last tweet of the day, he did not condemn the violence. Instead, he attempted to justify it. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away, he wrote. Remember this day forever. There's no doubt that President Trump thought that the actions of the rioters were justified. In the days after January 6th, he spoke to several different advisors, and in those conversations, he minimized the seriousness of the attack. Here's new testimony from another one of President Senior's advisors, Kellyanne Conway. You said you talked to the president the next day. Tell us about that conversation on the 7th. Yeah, I don't think it was very long. I just said that was just a terrible day. I'm working on a, a long statement. I said, it's crazy. What did he say? Um... No, these people are upset. They're very upset. In the days following the attack, President Trump also expressed a desire to pardon those involved in the attack. Since then, he's suggested that he will do so if he returns to the Oval Office. In summary, President Trump lit the flame. He poured gasoline on the fire and sat by in the White House dining room for hours watching the fire burn. And today, he still continues to, flan to fan those flames. That was his extreme dereliction of duty. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentlewoman yields back. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for the opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank you for your extraordinary leadership of this committee. Generations to come will praise you and the vice chair for your unswerving devotion to the rule of law. Several months ago, 
you tasked several of our members in the subcommittee with bringing recommendations to the full committee about potential referrals to the Department of Justice and other authorities based on evidence of criminal and civil offenses that has come to our attention over the course of our investigation. We are now prepared to share those recommendations today. Mr. Chairman, let me begin with some relevant background considerations to our criminal referrals. The dangerous assault on American constitutional democracy that took place on January 6, 2021, consists of hundreds of individual criminal offenses. Most such crimes are already being prosecuted by the Department of Justice. We propose to the committee advancing referrals where the gravity of the specific offense, the severity of its actual harm, and the centrality of the offender to the overall design of the unlawful scheme to overthrow the election compel us to speak. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Mr. Chairman, as you know, our committee had the opportunity last spring to present much of our evidence to a federal judge, something that distinguishes our investigation from any other congressional investigation I can recall. In the context of resolving evidentiary privilege issues related to the crime fraud doctrine in the Eastman case, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter examined just a small subset of our evidence to determine whether it showed the likely commission of a federal offense. The judge concluded that both former President Donald Trump and John Eastman likely violated two federal criminal statutes. This is the starting point for our analysis today. The first criminal statute we invoke for referral, therefore, is Title 18, Section 1512C, which makes it unlawful for anyone to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding of the United States government. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence, and impede this official proceeding, the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. Second, we believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This, oh, this statute is makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. In other words, to make an agreement... These are the statutes I teach in white-collar crime. I know them well. ...or defeat the lawful functions of the United States government by deceitful or dishonest means. Former President Trump did not engage in a plan to defraud the United States acting alone. He entered into agreements, formal and informal, with several other individuals who assisted him with his criminal objectives. Our report describes in detail the actions of numerous co-conspirators who I'm agreed with here. and participated okay. in Trump's plan to impair, obstruct, and defeat the certification of President Biden's electoral victory. And we have the law professor That's announcing it. the criminal charges. Determine all of the 
potential participants Love in this it. conspiracy, as our understanding of the role of many individuals may be incomplete even today because they refuse to answer our questions. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a far more complete picture through its own investigation. Third, we make a referral based on Title 18, Section 1001, which makes it unlawful to knowingly and willfully make oh, good. false statements to the federal government. The evidence clearly suggests that President Trump conspired with others to submit slates of fake electors to Congress and the National Archives. We believe that this evidence we set forth in our report is more than sufficient for a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump and others in connection with this offense. As before, we don't try to determine all of the participants in this conspiracy, many of whom refuse to answer our questions while under oath. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a more complete picture through its own investigation. The fourth and final statute we invoke for referral is Title 18, Section 2383. The statute applies to anyone who incites, assists, or engages in insurrection against the there United States of America. They, they, they got the trifecta there, man. Gives aid or comfort to an insurrection. An insurrection is a rebellion against the authority of the United States. It is a grave federal offense anchored in the Constitution itself, which repeatedly opposes insurrections and domestic violence, and indeed uses participation in insurrection by office holders as automatic grounds for disqualification from ever holding public office again at the federal or state level. Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection is guilty of a federal crime. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transfer, transition of power under our Constitution. The president has an affirmative and primary constitutional duty to act to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Nothing could be a greater betrayal of this duty than to assist in insurrection against the constitutional order. The complete factual basis for this referral is set forth in detail throughout our report. These are not the only statutes that are potentially relevant to President Trump's conduct related to the 2020 election. Depending on evidence developed by the Department of Justice, the president's actions could certainly trigger other criminal violations. Nor are President Trump and his immediate team the only people identified for referrals in our report. As part of our investigation, we asked multiple members of Congress to speak with us about issues critical to our understanding of this attack on the 2020 election and our system of constitutional democracy. None agreed to provide that essential information. As a result, we took the significant step of issuing them subpoenas based on the volume of information particular members possessed about one or more parts of President Trump's plans to overturn the election. None of the subpoenaed members complied. 
And we are now referring four members of Congress for appropriate sanction by the House Ethics Committee for failure to comply with lawful subpoenas. Mr. Chairman, we understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy that we describe in our report. But we have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. Accordingly, Mr. Chairman, in light of these facts, I ask unanimous consent that the chairman be directed to transmit to the United States Department of Justice relevant select committee records in furtherance of these criminal referrals. Without objection, so ordered. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I now yield back. Gentleman yields back. Pursuant to notice, I now call up select committee's final report pursuant to section 4A of House Resolution 503. The clerk shall designate the report. Final report of the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Without objection, the report will be considered read and open to amendment at this point. I now recognize the young woman from Virginia, Ms. Luria, for a motion. Mr. Chairman, I move that the committee favorably report to the House the select committee's final report, which includes the committee's legislative recommendations and criminal referrals of Donald J. Trump and others, pursuant to Section 4A of House Resolution 503. The question is on the motion to favorably report to the House those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. Mr. Chairman, I request a recorded vote. A recorded vote is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Kinzinger? Aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Aye. How is the chair recorded? Mr. Chairman, you are not recorded. Chair votes aye. Mr. Chairman? Aye. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The motion is agreed to. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid on the table. Without objection, staff is authorized to make any necessary technical or conforming changes to the report to reflect the actions of the committee. The chair requests those in the hearing room remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted members from the room. There being no further business, without objection, the select committee stands adjourned. Woof. 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 Wow. Um, you know, as usual, at the end of these hearings, I have um, mixed feelings. Um, although they're less mixed than they have been in, on other occasions. Um, 
actually feeling a little disgusted, uh, which is not what I was hoping for. I, I think the charges, the referrals are very important. I'm very glad that they went with the last one, which would, if, if, uh, if Donald were convicted, would uh, preclude his running for office uh, because of the uh, section three of the 14th amendment, um, which doesn't let people who uh, are involved in insurrections against our government uh, to be in office, but the failure to name names beyond him is inexplicable. Uh, well, it's not inexplicable. Let me rephrase that. It's totally explicable. It's inexcusable. Um, am I overreacting here, uh, Dahlia? I mean, this was this was the price you paid to get Cheney and Kinsinger, right? Is that you would center Donald Trump and make it about Donald Trump and a handful of people, you know, who were most complicit and uh, not make it about the larger story. This, this uh, was a movie sorry about- Sorry, can I ask you a question uh, before you continue? Because um, I, I just need this clarified. What would, what would have happened if they had proceeded properly without the support in this instance of Cheney and Kinziger. Like what are Cheney and Kinziger gonna, gonna do? Like pitch a fit and say, no, we didn't really wanna hold anybody else accountable even though they also committed crimes because we're still Republicans. What, 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 what's the downside to doing their fucking job? I mean, I think this is Kathy's point from before we started, which is we're in love with the idea of a bipartisan committee and was worth sacrificing seemingly everything big picture to get that kind of consensus. And uh, I think you're right. I think that the number of people who are let off the hook today is unconscionable. Norm, your thoughts? Uh, I'm waiting to see, I haven't gotten the report. I was supposed to get it uh, uh, earlier uh, when it was embargoed, but it never arrived. Um, I gotta believe they said there are other criminal referrals so what was missing here was simply the names of those uh, who were referred. And at least my understanding is it's going to include um, the ones we were talking about earlier. It's going to include um, uh, Meadows. It'll include Giuliani. It'll include Clark uh, and probably some others. So it was more uh, to me, I'm not as upset as you are, Mary, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the hearing is important. Let's face it, though, a hearing at one o'clock in the afternoon, um, it's not the people who are watching right now. It's going to be what emerges from all of this and the stories. And it'll be on us to amplify that these others need to be brought to the bar of justice as well. What makes me feel good about this is that we have four criminal referrals of Donald Trump. Yeah. It's not just one. It's not even two. We're talking about obstruction, conspiracy to defraud, false statements, incitement to insurrection. That's big shit. Yeah. Uh, and that leaves me feel good. And at the same time, the video I thought is terrific. 
And, uh, you know, every part of it, including that they left in those pauses by Cipollone, um, where he was wondering whether he should say directly, uh, you know, Trump stood alone in all of this, but it became very clear. And I hope this video is going to be replayed over and over again, because for a lot of people who haven't followed this or for people who may have seen hearings earlier and then just kind of forgot or it didn't come right to mind, this is now brought right to mind. I take the fifth. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to get uh, get to that in a second. Um, and Jen, I'm going to say cryptically, she could just leave it on the floor. Um, <laughs> so um, let me keep, stay on this for a second, Waj, because I agree with Norm that, that it, it, it doesn't mean that other people aren't going to be implicated, uh, although we don't know. I, but there's power in naming names. There's power in connecting the dots yeah. between one man acting alone and a vast conspiracy at the highest levels of the government from him on down, not just him. And the thing is that if, if other charges are brought, right, if there are other referrals, a lot of people won't necessarily know that, and we lose the connective tissue of this. So let me now flip and try to be the optimist because I was cynical. At, in wait, my, wait, 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 wait. I am so stressed right now. If you try to be optimistic, you may just push me over the edge. Yeah, but, but I'm going to be I'm, I'm the optimist and bring it back to the cynic uh, to be pragmatic. Uh, there <laughs> okay. was... You're, you're witnessing and you witnessed the uh, kind of fostering political bargains that are made uh, and sometimes have to be made. Uh, and what you saw was others. And Jamie Raskin is not an idiot. Uh, he was very deliberate in when he said Donald Trump, uh, East Midland, others. others. Now, others is where the rest of us cringe, and rightfully so, because we know that it is an incestuous, interconnected network. That includes Rudy Giuliani, Michael Flynn, Mark Meadows, 34 Republican, uh, sitting Republican congressmen who texted him, Ginny Thomas who texted him, right? Perhaps Clarence Thomas and on and on and on. This is a vast criminal conspiracy where it, if it was black and brown folks and poor folks, you would see all of them indicted and hauled to jail. But in order to get uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger to appear, uh, and to give it a semblance of bipartisanship that can win over perhaps some moderates, some independents, and some Republicans, and give at least that veneer or that title of bipartisan commission, which reporters would say again and again and again, that then gets, if you will, amplified in the mainstream, unfortunately, for better or worse. That's where you have the others come in. I also think what's happening behind the scenes, and this is just my, you know, wearing my old retired unfrozen caveman lawyer hat is it gives an opportunity to Meadows in particular to sing, right? Because I don't think Meadows and a few other uh, individuals are going to do spend a, a day in jail. I think they're too soft to be investigated and I think they're going to sing like birds. So the others also allows these other individuals to be like, all right, do you want to play with the DOJ or do you want to sit around and play with Trump and perhaps go to jail? I think several of them are going to sink. Now, 
the good thing here is, and, and as Norm was saying, is that those four criminal statutes, right? And in our, in, in our chat section, in our nerd chat section, uh, for those who are in the comments, we we did a recap, right? Four criminal statutes is no joke. And that last one is a whopper, right? And so the fact that the name Trump and Eastman, guys, for those who don't know, John Eastman is the right-wing attorney who has floated around the independent state legislator, legislature theory that me and Dahlia have tried our best to warn about, which, by the way, is in the Supreme Court route with Moore v. Harper. And let's pray to God that uh, Amy Comey Barrett is that fifth justice who says, nope, this is whack and quashes the independent state legislature. What is the thing to have to hope for, though? Well, I mean, that's the hope, right? Because four of the nine have already said, eh, we'll let this float. This is the coup in search of a legal theory that John Eastman proposed, even though he knows it was bullshit, right? Uh, which will allow Republicans to pretty much, in effect, go along with the coup in 2024. So John Eastman is kind of the node here, and he is attached to Ginny Thomas and the right-wing ecosystem. So this is where I want to just connect the tissue, right? The others... Through those two, Trump and Eastman, it brings a whole bunch of Republicans in the mix. And I think there's an opportunity now just for the DOJ and those Republicans who want to now all of a sudden they have, I don't know, a memory. They're like, oh, let me speak up now. It gives an opportunity for them to speak up. Now, obviously, it pisses us off. We've seen in history where these folks, you know, go unscathed. They're not held accountable. This is the political price to pay to get Trump. And now the ball, though, this is where the the optimist and cynic in me comes out. The ball is in DOJ's court. That's what I tweeted afterwards. They've done their job. They showed the video. They have the evidence. You have, I want to say this, the, the January 6th committee did something really great in that you never heard from Democrats. You heard from Republicans. It was all MAGA Republicans who spoke up and created this narrative, which shows a complicity in a failed violent coup. So what more do you need to see, Merrick Garland and DOJ? What more do you need to see? And Raskin and company gave you four criminal statutes. They made the case. And the last thing I'll say is, in addition to the violent insurrection in D.C., go up to New York. You have criming from the uh, financial criming. Go down to Mar-a-Lago. You have him stealing uh, classified documents in an unsecured location. And then go up to Georgia, where you have tampering and fraud uh, with uh, election. So you have four different locations. You have four criminal statutes for January 6th. You have an entire ecosystem. You have Mark Meadows texts uh, that show at least 34 sitting Republican congressmen. And that's where the others come in. And you have every right to be upset, Mary, but there's an opportunity here for more. And unfortunately, this is the price to pay for a bipartisan commission and investigation. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> if I can add something... Yeah. I just want to push back a bit, Mary. I, I, I don't care that they didn't name the four. I think it's a. a wait, wait, I, wait, hold on. Say, just, sorry, Brian. I'm not just the four, the thirty whatever. Yeah, I'm glad, honestly, because it, if you name these people today, then you take away from what's at the top, Donald Trump, and you give that sob the ability to throw other people back under the bus. So I wanted this to be about Donald. Jamie's not stupid. The DOJ isn't stupid. And those that they referred will be prosecuted and we'll get all the names. Just not today. I can live with that. I can live with that because the bottom line is I also want to see him flip some of these SOBs. And I think that they're going to sit there today. They heard what Jamie Raskin said. And there's plenty of them that are having to clean up their Depends undergarments right now as we speak. And they're going to be the very first. And Meadows will trot his fat 
corpulent toady butt right into the DOJ and go, uh, what do you want to know? Take, take, don't prosecute me. I'll give you everything. Donald Trump, yeah, I, I, I'm the one who laced up his depends for him. That's me. He'll do all of that. At the end of the day, I think it was a masterful stroke to make sure that at the end of the day, Donald Trump is held accountable for being the guy in charge of it, the guy who did it, the guy who made sure that others followed his lead, and those that followed his lead. And we look, we did hear who some of them were. They didn't name them in the referral, but we heard Eastman, we heard Giuliani, we heard Clark, Clark, they already pulled out of his front yard and threw him in his underwear on his front yard. That Thank guy's you. gone. Brian, so though, I, I just want to push, I I, push I back a little relaxed. bit. It's all going to be good. I want to push back a little bit, though. Drip, drip, drip did not work for the Mueller investigation. But this isn't the Mueller investigation. Okay, but I'm just saying it's not it's not it's not a slam dunk, you know, to say that that that's a good strategy. The we difference don't is that. that Bill Barr deflected on the Mueller investigation. Bill Barr protected Donald Trump. Bill Barr did not protect Donald Trump now. And so Donald Trump has, thats that thin veneer of civility has been stripped away. Donald Trump is revealed to be the, the big flaming turd that he is, and they will get them. I have no doubt. I think you're, I think you should relax. It's all going to be good. I was, I, I'll change, I, you know, I said at the beginning, I thought that, that the Mar-a-Lago investigation would be the first to, to issue indictments. I now believe that the, it may be from this, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I, I love being told to relax. I, I love you. I just want you to relax. Oh, good. <laughs> kidding. I mean, I'm not really kidding, but um, I, I totally see where you're coming from. Uh, Jen, am I being too, um, I can't think of the word that I am right now because I'm tired as on top of everything else, but am I, yes, am I you're being too cautiously pessimistic. Okay. There you go. Is that is that really what um, Great. Am yes. I, okay, so, Here's so the deal. explain to me. I uh, couldn't be happier about these four statutes. And that I can I can see that. No, 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 no. But it's the you know, again, historical context. Fucking 18 USC 1001. That's a really easy one to prove. That's the false statement statute. Uh-huh. Okay, so that one is one that like flipping everybody like Martha Stewart even thinks she went to jail for insider trading now it was false statements and obstruction okay like these are like you know it, we've got a false statements and we've got the obstruction those are going to be super easy S the sedition one's a little harder um and the um my uh the, my other favorite standby the conspiracy to defraud clause under 371 long history of conspiracy to defraud, which doesn't mean fraud like money. It means defeating a lawful function of the government, often used in the election context. Right. So look, I'm I'm coming to this with the with the case law in my head, knowing that even a, a conviction on appeal is going to be stronger knowing the context of these statutes. Also, I know what the the prison times are for purposes of flipping, even if um even though the uh sentencing guidelines always shrink things down, these statutes come with serious potential jail sentences. The um, obstruction one is up to 20 years. False statement is five. You got another five on um, conspiracy to defraud. I, I, the seditious conspiracy one, it's not so much the jail time. It's not being able to be on the ballot. So anyway, I, when I look at these statutes, I'm excited as just knowing that these are solid ones. They're not surprising. 
statutes because we saw this in the civil case with Eastman. Um, the other stuff, though, that you're talking about is what about what about the others? And to me, um, the others are really good to sort of um, the reason why trickle out works better is these are the Republican folks who are going to be running their dog and pony clown shows. Um, I'm calling it next semester. It's not a semester. <laughs> next term. Um, and so, you know, let, let, let's see where that let's see where that goes. I'm dying to get the embargoed report or at least the pieces that come out now, because I like to read. I like to read the footnotes. I like to read the statutes. Um, you win the nerd off. Before it even begins. <laughs> I mean, I just think, I think, you know, everyone has a default state, state, right? My default state is, oh my God, this is so exciting and amazing, even if it's crap. Like I could look at a bowl of vanilla ice cream and imagine it's some sort of great feast and everyone could be like, that's just vanilla ice cream. And I thought it was the fancy dessert, right? That's me, right? So my default may be a little bit too enthusiastic. And so I think it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes too optimistic. Right. Let me add just one, okay. one thing to this. Okay, sorry, this go ahead. Is, that what's particularly important to me about this is the Mar-a-Lago case is trickier because of venue. They yeah. may have to try that one in Florida. And in even though it's a slam dunk, uh, I don't trust a Florida jury. Uh, it's not at all out of the question for me that they somehow are able to get one or two Trumpists in there who won't care what the evidence uh, shows. People who would say, yeah, we saw him shoot somebody in broad daylight on Fifth Avenue. So what? Um, this will be brought in the District of Columbia. Can I ask can I and, for something? Uh, Damn you, Norm. Because yeah. you're not even, I'll let you go to a second. You're not even a law professor. I teach civil procedure and you're fucking right about venue. God, I hate that. Continue, yeah. Norm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think mean, that's, that's basically it. Where if, if we do get, if Brian is right, and I hope he is, that these are the first cases brought. This will be in the district, and that's where we will have a trial where I think it is far more likely, as the evidence is clear, that he gets convicted. Uh, so you don't this think is good. And I, you know, even in, in Georgia, where we, we can't forget that Fannie Willis is still moving along, um, and that's also with all deliberate speed. But, you know, a Georgia jury uh, there also kind of depends on, you know, if they're able to do it in Fulton County, maybe it's a little bit better, but the venue matters here. And yeah. the Georgia case is a, is a slam dunk case. Uh, of yeah. course the venue matters, but that case, they have him dead to rights. They literally have his audio, literally. Listen, I, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with all that. I also would say that we were having the exact same conversation a year ago. So I think part of the frustration is cumulative because again, the doors, yeah, they're still closing, but they're also still open, right? Uh, and they've been closing for decades. So um, I don't know, Dahlia, am I being, <laughs> again, I, I'm not saying that the, that nothing good happened today. I, I think that the charges, I, I wasn't sure that they were going to go all the way with uh, the, the fourth one. I don't know if it's technically a seditious conspiracy, but whatever it was, the one that would uh, pre preclude his running again. Um, but I do, I do worry uh, that I don't know. Um, 
it just again it just seems that yes okay it's just another thing that's happening that that isn't like no deals getting closed here maybe maybe this is the way to gently reframe what you and i are saying mary which is was today better for ron DeSantis or better for democracy and i think what you know, you and I are evincing here is some real fear that if the sort of aperture is so narrow that we're just hiving off Trump and Mark Meadows and John Eastman, then this doesn't solve the fundamental threat to democracy. Right. And I think in some sense, my answer to you on that question is that you and I have expected way too much uh, from the legal system for too long, that this was not going to be disqualifying for Ron DeSantis or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or the Republican Party or even the Oath Keeper. Like this is just a really narrow kind of bird by bird process that has always been too slow and too um, meticulous for the sort of urgency of the threat to democracy. I still, although I completely align myself with that worldview that you want accountability you know, at every level in three dimensions. And I just don't think that's what the legal system can provide. But I will say in this sense, I'm a little more sanguine than you are, because I do think that the idea that effective today, there will be accountability, not just for Donald Trump, but for, you know, for unnamed uh, members of uh, Congress and other folks unnamed, I think is a very, very meaningful sort of lodestar for what begins now. And so I I share your frustration that there are a thousand names that were not named today, but I also think the legal system can't do the work that you and I want it to do. Yeah, and and Norm, I I have a a quick question for you, but before that, I just want to say, I I think that that is a conversation we're going to have to have going forward. I, you know, is this system self-sustaining if it's so broken it cannot hold the people who tried and continue to try to break it and take it down are never held accountable that was a very wordy and and probably um ungrammatical statement what i mean is if we continue to have people in the government, running the government, who tried to take the government down. I, I don't know that this project can last that much longer. Uh, but Norm, I have a very serious question to ask you. You need to think long and hard. Do you believe in the peaceful transfer of power at the top of the United States government? Think Fifth. very carefully before you answer. No need to think. Fifth. Oh, you know... All right, all right, all right, all right. Waj, uh, next question to you. Uh, Notice how concise I was. I didn't say uh, anything, but, you know, what we know from uh, Goodfellas and all these other uh, movies and what we know about organized crime, where they go through the full uh, litany. I refuse to answer on the grounds that it may incriminate me as because of the fifth. I just said fifth. Michael Flynn has taught us a new way of pithy uh, uh, conversing. The paradox, I think you've been practicing in the mirror, Norm, because it was just like, I just. I did. The first time I fumbled it, I said fourth. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, watch. Slightly different question to you, but also equally important. Do you 
believe that the violence on January 6th was either legally or morally justified. I plead the fifth. Uh, One, two, three, four, fifth. I plead the fifth. I've seen that movie, brother. <laughs> That's actually, an old show reference for the old heads, by the way. Yeah. And I'm, actually re I'm also reminded of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> I will never incriminate myself. Uh, you, you are asking loaded questions, and I, for one, uh, as an unfrozen caveman lawyer, uh, know my rights, Mary Trump. So All, right. All right. All uh, right. Let's mention one more name uh, before we go any further, which please. was not mentioned so far, I think, by any of us. Tony Ornato. Oh, yes. If there's one thing oh, no. I want yes. the Biden administration to do itself, it's to clean out the fucking Secret Service from these people who yes. have undermined it over and over again. And Ornato has to be one of those who's brought to the bar of justice. And Norm, you know, people forget that Dan Bongino, who is trying to replace the Rush Limbaugh, as one of their right wing, you know, spokesmen for disinformation is a former Secret Service agent. Yeah. So this is I keep mentioning that this is an incestuous conservative ecosystem. And going back to your 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 cautiously pessimistic uh, uh, frame of mind, Mary, I think the reason why you, me, Dahlia and others, you know, maybe the reason why you are so frustrated is because we know how urgent the threat is that it isn't just Trump. The entire Republican ecosystem has become radicalized and weaponized and is still committed to the coup. And I think your frustration is real in that those dots are not connected by mainstream institutions. And that even if you get Trump, DeSantis is just a more refined, less charismatic, but less um, uh, reckless version of Trump who will double down on the extremism. And so that fear is real. Uh, yeah, um, we got to wrap up um, because some of us have somewhere to be um, in the not too distant future. Uh, Jen, any last words? Um, and then uh, Brian, yeah. if you can stay on because we need to ask you a question as well. So since we're doing constitutional rights, I would just like to ask Mary, am I free to leave? <laughs> no, you are not free to leave. <laughs> Where's my fucking lawyer? I'm not saying anything. F-I-F-F. -F -F. Plead the fifth. Five. That's it? Okay. Cinco. <laughs> so we're, we're all pleading, uh, we're all pleading the fifth, which is fabulous um, because it makes for riveting viewing. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, Mary, should you have an entire show one time where you just ask us questions and we just come up with creative yes. variations of saying the fifth? Yeah, it's it would be like being in a deposition with Donald. Um, yeah. or like Flint. <laughs> Riveting. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you also to Norm and Dahlia and Kathy. And was anybody else here? Everybody. But can, can I have one thing that we... Yes, Emily was here delivering well, beverages. <laughs> delivering drugs. Maybe no, it was soda. <laughs> Can I, can I just add one thing that I think we, we should have mentioned? And that is that wonderful Liz Cheney moment where she referred to Ronald Reagan as one of the great people that, you know, that SOB is the guy who set the table that gave us Donald Trump. Yeah, and right. the irony of that moment for that to be lost 
to me was the most disgusting moment that we saw today. The just, fact I, that it was allowed. I mean, you know, we've yeah. we've we, we all know how we feel about Ronald Reagan, and again, it's part of the the rights project of normalizing, you know, scapegoating uh, some people and normalizing the rest of it by pretending that they have no connection to the people they've scapegoated. It's infuriating and it's a thing that worries me. Uh, Jen, you have a correction and then I'm going to wrap up. Yeah, I'm not sure if I misstated that that last statute was insurrection. I might have said seditious conspiracy, but 2383 is insurrection. Mary knows it. That's right. By um, far the nerdiest thing you have said today, Jen. <laughs> the nerd correct, correction. And also, Mary, do you want to tell people what's happening tonight in LA? I, am I? Are you going to tell I'm people? I was planning on it, but okay, good. Yeah. okay. So, first of all, thank you everybody for being here with us for the the hearing. Um, it was one of my least favorite versions of the J Six Committee hearings, but again, huge has. Has any person who once held that office had these kinds of referrals? No. No. So, uh, the, it, it, I mean, listen, there are lots of reasons to think, to be healthily skeptical or, you know, reasonably pessimistic. He's gotten away with so much and he continues to get away with so much. It's, it's very debilitating. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that a lot of good didn't happen today or a lot of good wasn't revealed today. Anyway, as some of you know, Waj, Jen, and I are in Los Angeles as we in the same building in separate rooms for audio. No doxing. No doxing. We're not in the same building. Oh, shoot. I gave the assassination coordinates. I'm so sorry. Please don't ban me from Twitter. Um, Anyway. (laughs) There, as far as I know, there are no Saudi sheikhs here, uh, so we're 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 good. Yes, um, yes, and Jared and Elon definitely aren't here. I, I don't think they would stay at this hotel, but I love it um, personally. So we are having our very first live in person on stage event, the Mary Trump Show Nerd Adventures at Dynasty Typewriter. It's sold out, but you know. Who knows? Maybe maybe some people don't show or whatever. You might be able to pick up a ticket. Um, and it is go. Should I reveal the special guest? No, we're going to keep it a secret. We're going to keep it a secret. We have a, a special local guest who's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's it's a live version of the show, but we've got some extras to to make it more worth your while to show up in person. And the hope is that it's going to go so well, we're going to keep uh, keep doing it. Uh, in different cities and hopefully a city near you. Uh, that is it for us. We will, we're videotaping the show, whether or not it ever sees the light of day remains to be seen, but uh, we'll see. Um, thank you all again so much for being here. Um, we will, there's no Nerd Avengers tomorrow because I think we're all flying or something. Uh, and uh, we will be back Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for our, our regular one-on-one interview show. That's at youtube.com slash Politicon. And we will, of course, be here uh, next Tuesday. The Nerd Avengers will once again assemble. Um, and that is it. In the meantime, please stay safe and be kind. <laughs>